Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Patrick Sheehan, a host of the channel. Today, we're going to be talking to Daniel Friedman about his new book, Freedom from Work, Embracing Financial Self-Help in the United States and Argentina, which is out in 2017 from Stanford University Press. In brief, Freedom from Work uh, explores how people in the United States and Argentina are being taught to think about themselves as economic actors today in what some people call the new economy, the post-industrial economy, or some label as just neoliberalism. Friedman follows groups of people who practice the advice of what he calls financial self-help, which involves a world of best-selling books, seminars, and board games even, that he discovers fundamentally reorient users' perceptions of what their economic ethics and goals ought to be and how they ought to try to achieve them. Um, Far from these self-helpers being some isolated underground cult, listeners and readers, I think, will no doubt have uh, recognized some of the ideas um, discussed in the book and by these financial self-helpers, which shows really the reach of these ideas. Um, Friedman uses ethnographic methods, extensive interviewing, and spending many times in these seminars and get-togethers to try to unpack the core ideas and practices of financial self-help. In particular, I find this book so fascinating because it looks at how what we call quote, the new economy isn't just the result of big structural changes like globalization, technological change. It also depends on everyday people thinking and acting in the world in certain ways. And this book looks fundamentally at how people are transforming themselves and being transformed. It's sort of the flip side, the human side to the big stories we hear of financialization and the new economy. Daniel Friedman is a assistant professor of sociology and Latin American studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Daniel, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you, and uh, thanks for having me. We're very glad to have you. I thought maybe you could start off with telling us a bit about who you are, your background, um, and particularly what led you to the ideas that animate the book. Uh, Okay. Uh, Well, first, let me say that um, summary of the book. I think I'm going to transcribe that because that was uh, really uh, a very, a very neat way of putting it. So um, it's a good question how I be- became interested in uh, these people who read financial self-help books and and uh, participate in activities in financial self-help. I had not much uh, contact at all with that word. It actually um, came from earlier research I did that had nothing to do case-wise with this. Um, my earlier work was on the dictatorship in Argentina um, that happened from 1976 to 1983. I am originally from Argentina. Then I moved uh, to the U.S. Uh, for graduate school, and uh, I, and, and I am still living in, in the United States. So what I studied in, in that uh, work was how the government was sort of creating a new economic actor that you can call uh, homo economicus, 
which is the economic actor that tries to calculate um, and benefits and costs and is uh, sort of atomized from uh, society. And basically, uh, I in that study, since it was historical, I only studied sort of how the government does it, how the government uh, creates consumers, creates investors, uh, gives them the tools, gives them the rationale uh, for being a good consumer and a good investor. And uh, part of this work was done by economic authorities, which were economists. And But, but what I couldn't do in that uh, research is understanding the process sort of bottom-up, if you wish, how people try to change themselves into a certain economic actor. So then I found the contemporary case. Um, I watch something on TV or, you know, some serendipitous way in which I, I discovered that there's this uh, world of financial self-help. I discovered that some people play a board game um, and I decided to jump on it to start attending these meetings. And from that came the book. So then maybe we can start at, at the beginning of the book. You open it up with the story of Guillermo, who is a bookseller in Buenos Aires, comes across a book that is the beginning of a, his journey into the world of financial self-help. Would you tell us about Guillermo and, and a little bit about his story? Yes. Well, uh, Guillermo, by the way, was such a, a nice guy that I interviewed several times uh, in Buenos Aires. And uh, he owned this uh, little like booth in a, in a park in Buenos Aires that is very famous for uh, book selling, like used book selling and uh CDs and records. I don't know now what people trade there, but sort of culture, books, and so on. And uh, Guillermo was telling me how in the few in the few years before I interviewed him, this was in 2007 when I interviewed him, he started to change about himself and, and his financial planning, his behavior in a different way. Because... He actually, because of his job, he saw uh, some of these books uh, of financial self-help. One that is very famous and that is the center of my of my book is uh, "Rich Dad Poor Dad." What what the uh, what people teach uh, their children? Wait, wait, what rich people teach their children that the poor and the middle class don't? That's that's the, the name of the book. So "Rich Dad Poor Dad" is a very famous uh, series. And he was seeing the book, but he never, Guillermo never paid attention to it. It was something that he uh, he didn't think it was relevant to him. He said he came, he came from a sort of lefty uh, culture family in Buenos Aires, and he thought that was some sort of businessy thing that wasn't for him. And he was selling it so well that he started reading it. And when he started reading it, he started uh, changing his perception of himself, his perception of why he was uh, rejecting certain uh, values or certain aspects of uh, trying to be more successful financially and so on. And so that sent him into a, a sort of a journey that it wasn't only about uh, learning how to do business better 
or how to improve his uh, personal finance. It was also about himself, about changing things inside, if you wish, to be able to do that. And, and in a way, that story reflects a little bit of what the book is about in terms of disconnection that people perceive between uh, straightforward economic action and more sort of deeper things about how people should be shaping themselves in a certain way in this day and age. So then Guillermo started to apply some of these, um, some of some innovations in his business. And uh, he, ha- he had a partner that was his brother. His brother rejected some of them. He, they parted ways. He started doing it by himself. And eventually, he uh, started playing cash flow, which is a board game that funds financial self-help uh, plays play. And eventually, he he really he he, he really became involved in, in changing himself. And so, yeah, that's that's sort of the story that opens the book and allows me to go into the the more you know the the, the argument of the story after that. Great. Yeah. So the book you mentioned there, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, is sort of uh, is the linchpin of this financial self-help world. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what the book says. And this book comes with, as we learn, a whole lot of other practices that readers and users of the book and one similar to it are supposed to do. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what the book tries to tell its readers and maybe what the other activities that go along with it try to teach. Well, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, is one of the most successful brands of financial self-help in the last uh, 15 years, maybe uh, a little more. So the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad is uh, Robert Kiyosaki. And he's not just the author of one book. He has a series of books that include uh, books uh, for... Uh, children, books for um, women, for example, this uh, rich woman that's auth- authored by by his wife, uh, specific books on uh, real estate investing and so on. So it's a it's a it's it's a brand. It's like a system of of books and products. But what caught my attention when I started this research in two thousand and seven were a few distinctive things. First. Actually, a little earlier, I the first time I ran into um, Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad was an article I read in an Argentine newspaper about people getting together to play a board game. And uh, that made me very, very curious of what was going on there. I mean, as a sociologist, anytime you see people doing weird things, you start wondering what's going on. Uh, so that's one thing, and I can talk more about uh, the board game later. But um, the other thing was watching one of those long PBS channels uh, fundraisers where where people uh, call, uh, ask you to to call and make a donation and so on and buy a DVD or a set of DVDs or whatever product they are trying to choose for fundraising and they were showing parts of a DVD of Robert Kiyosaki in which he was explaining people that they had to be financially free, that they had to plan well for retirement, but also uh, essentially that the world has 
changed from uh, what he called the industrial age into the information age, and that now jobs were not as secure as they used to be, and that you needed to prepare yourself for your financial life in a different way. And it caught my attention because, of course, I knew there were self-help gurus uh, around, but some of what he was saying was more like... uh, uh, more similar to what sociologists say about how the world changed in the last uh, thirty or forty years than I than I I thought uh, I, I would have thought before listening to this. Uh, some of it made sense in terms of the uh, conditions under which we work today, the conditions under which capitalism works today, and so on and so forth. Yet. Most of the uh, weight of the sort of responsibility for dealing with that was on the individual. These are obviously self-help books, and they're telling you that you probably have a problem that you need to solve inside yourself. You were probably raised uh, at a time, or many people were raised at a time in which Um, jobs were more secure than they are today. And therefore, people think that their uh, goal should be to find a secure job and so on and so forth. And this was trying to, uh, this uh, story of Rich Dad was sort of aimed at changing people's perception. So that got me very, very, interested and that's how I decided to start going to these groups and so on and so forth. In the book, you sort of distill down um, some of the core ideas that come from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but that animate all the other similar books and the world of financial self-help. You sort of boil them down to three categories of ideas. Would Would you tell us what those three core ideas are? Yeah, so I divide financial self-help in uh, in three features that are sort of components of financial self-help. Uh, first, something I kind of mentioned before is a sociological component, what I call a sociological component, and that means uh, theories about how the world works. So I was talking about earlier about the uh, information age and industrial age, the idea that the way we work today is different, uh, particularly in terms of the kind of stability that you can expect from uh, from jobs, uh, at least since the 1970s or 80s. And so what these books provide is a diagnosis of our current situation that, of course, some of these diagnoses are available in other forms and, and social scientists are all the time producing these diagnoses. But what caught my attention was that uh, self-help books give you uh, a, a, an interpretation, a reading of how the world works and therefore how you should behave in that world. And the other thing that is part of this sociological component is um, an idea of how the class structure Works so Robert Kiyosaki and, and uh, has another book uh, among the many he has that's called the Cash Flow Quadrant, and so that's uh, an idea of a 
of class structure in which people are divided in a certain way according to uh, whether they are self-employed employees, investors, or business owners. And from that on, uh, the books push people to think how they can move from a situation in which they have to work uh, as employees to a situation in which they become investors and and what they have how how they have to change to do that so so that's a sociological component then there's the, a technical component or what i call a technical component which means uh, there's technical tools about how you should uh, think about your finances in a in a more uh, technical way. For example, how you categorize different types of income and investments, how, how you should uh, think about debt, how you should calculate. So that, that would be uh, the more sort of rational or the more technical part that comes in these, uh, in these sort of resources, books, and so on. And finally, there's the what I call, in the absence of a better word, the motivational component. Essentially, what these books and these activities will tell people who attend is, well, you need to understand the way the world works. You need to acquire technical tools for figuring out how to make money and how to get what they call passive income, which is income that doesn't come from your own work, but comes from the work, time, or money from others. And finally, uh, that all that is not enough if, if you don't work on yourself, if you don't change inside, if you don't uh, undergo a, a pretty demanding work on yourself to, to change into the kind of person that would be able to achieve financial freedom, which is essentially uh, being able to uh, have income without having to work. So these are the three parts of it. Great. Yeah. And one can see and, and they find when they read the book how powerful those three components when brought together are to be a sort of totalizing worldview and ideology that that the readers of the books and the the followers of Kiyosaki and, and these other financial self-help gurus um, move. You can see just how powerful all three of those are and how they come together. Um, I wonder if you could uh, tell us more about sort of the last thing you said, which is the goal of all this. When we understand the – when we read this and we see how the world works uh, and we, we have the tools of how, to, of how to interact with it and we have the motivation of how we should think about what we want to do, the goal of all this in the end is to be financially free. What does that mean exactly and how are users supposed to get there how, and what are the things they need to do to transform themselves to become financially free? Yes, that's a very important question. And financial freedom is at at the center of all these practices. Uh, Basically, uh, some people might show up to uh, the kinds of activities that I attended, um, maybe having a vague sense of uh, trying to, they want to be financially in a better position, not work that so much or, or, or whatever. Uh, And, in a way, uh, there, there's a chapter I call, it's not about uh, money, it's about freedom. So essentially, if, if people come to these uh, activities with the idea of making money, the, my problem is making more money, uh, 
you're in for a bit of a surprise because there's a bit of a more elaborate framework, as I was suggesting before, in which it's not money what you should be trying to achieve, but rather you should try to change yourself in a way that uh, money is, co- is going to come, come to you uh, sort of automatically if you happen to change yourself inside. So financial freedom can be defined for me in two ways. One is a very straightforward uh, sort of equation in which basically you are financially free according to these resources if you uh, all the income you receive comes from investment and doesn't come from your own work. So basically, you don't need to work and you can live off your investments. Now, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that uh, because, for example, uh, someone like Zuzi Orman, who's also a famous financial guru, says something along the lines of you're financially free when you manage to uh, dominate your fears, when you have power over your fears and your weaknesses. So financially, financial freedom is not just an equation between income and expenses, but also uh, a condition of the self. So in a way, you, you might not reach that uh, sort of financial state of financial freedom, but you can start doing things that will liberate you in a way. And, and this connects these practices with, with several practices of, finan- of, of self-help in general, of liberating yourself, controlling yourself more, and so on and so forth. So uh, financial freedom is a, is a pretty tricky concept. It's like a horizon in the future, but it's also uh, a, a, a practice to, to change yourself. There's, there's a very interesting author, that I cite in the book, uh, Mariana Valverde, and she says, in, in, in many practices of self-help, freedom is the state that people want to reach, but it's also the tool by which you reach that state, you see? Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And I particularly find interesting, you know, you mentioned in there the, the goal of liberating yourself. And I think maybe this is a time that we could tie this to uh, one of the core concepts throughout the book that sometimes gets ill-defined, which is the term that a lot of academics use, which is neoliberalism. And this is used in a bunch of different ways throughout the academic world. Um, and I know that you actually wanted to put the term in your title, uh, the title of the book, but maybe we're encouraged uh, not to do so. And But it's an animating concept throughout that ties to this ideology that comes with financial freedom, uh, financial self-help. So could you tell us what neoliberalism means, <laughs> how different people use the term, yes. um, and what kind of meaning you deploy in yes. the book? Well, neoliberalism is one of those terms that uh, are problematic because, uh, first of all, many people use it to mean very different things. Uh, the other problem is that they don't define it. They assume that everyone will understand what they're talking about. And finally, no one, uh, very, very, very few people call themselves uh, neoliberals. Uh, So it's a a concept that is loaded with 
some sort of attack against particular forms of, of thinking or policies and so on. So in, in this book, I use it in a, in a fairly particular way, the term neoliberalism. You could think of neoliberalism as, uh, as an ideology and some people have done that. You could think, for example, of neoliberalism as a set of policies. Uh, and there are certainly other options. But my use of neoliberalism is within the tradition uh, started by Michel Foucault, the French philosopher, sociologist, uh, whatever you want to call him, and continued by many people after Foucault died in 1984. That's called governmentality. And essentially sees neoliberalism more than anything as a way of uh, governing, as a way of conducting the conduct of uh, individuals. And uh, there are certainly several different forms of governing throughout uh, history. And neoliberalism is characterized by the notion that uh, people should uh, not, should use their own freedom as a way of self-government. Essentially, neoliberalism tries to produce situations in which uh, individuals do not need to be governed so much from the outside. Uh, So when I saw financial self-help as a case, it tied very well with the concern uh, of neoliberalism that, that people become... Um, entrepreneurs of themselves, essentially people who take responsibility, who are not dependent on uh, responsibility for themselves and for their financial conduct, who treat themselves as if they were uh, the owners of a business of themselves, if that makes uh, sense, that they increase what economies call uh, their human capital, that they... Uh, become the targets of their own transformation so as, so as to adjust to economic structures in a way that doesn't demand so much intervention from the outside. So that's sort of the line of neoliberalism that uh, in which I became interested even before the book. And then when I saw the case, uh, I saw there was a very in- interesting um, sort of uh, version of that uh, work on the self that neoliber- neoliberalism demands a lot of. And the other thing that caught my attention there re- in relation to neoliberalism is that this was not some kind of government uh, intervention or government plan in order to change people in a certain way, but it was actually fairly independent and actually voluntary. You go, you buy the book, you go, you play the board game, you, you participate in these things voluntarily. So I, I thought that was also a very sort of intriguing thing in terms of how individuals themselves kind of uh, buy into without uh, so much external intervention, but of course conditioned by the current uh, uh, situation in terms of work and so on. When someone like Kiyosaki says that work is not as secure as it used to be, uh, that of course resonates with people in a way that probably wouldn't have resonated so much 40, 50 years or 60 years ago. In addition to the, to this uses a usage of neoliberalism as sort of ideology and governmentality and drawing on the Foucault, you also have another 
sort of guiding theory in the book um, that is often called economic performativity. Would you tell us what that means and how it applies? Yeah, so economic performativity is an idea that was uh, started by a French sociologist called Michel Calon. And essentially what it says is that uh, sociologists, for the most part, have tried to uh, deny that there is such a thing as what we call the homo economicus, the subject that economics assumes, well, most economics assumes, uh, behavioral economics uh, is less and less uh, sort of committed to that, to that idea, but essentially economics assumes a certain form of action that is rational, that is uh, cost-benefit-oriented, uh, and sociologists uh, have resisted that, saying that, you know, humans are much more complex than that. They're determined by many more things and not just uh, a calculation of benefit and cost. But what Calon said was, yes, that's true. But also you can't ignore that there are ways in which that kind of behavior uh, can be uh, produced, maybe not the exact thing. Uh, sort of behavior that is modeled in economic models, but through certain mechanisms, one can bring action closer to that model of action. And what Kalan says is that economics has a lot to do with producing that kinds of behaviors. Economics for Kalan is not something that studies the world, it's something that produces the world. So if you look at many markets, you would see that part of how they were configured was with the intervention, with the help of economic theories. If you want to put it in more, in, in more blunt terms, uh, theories become true as they are sort of enacted in real worlds, in real markets. So to bring this closer to the issue of the book, uh, most people don't read economics unless they have a course in high school or college or, or so on. Uh, so the connection between economic knowledge and large amounts of uh, people uh, actually comes many times through resources like financial self-help. There is forms of, there are forms of economic knowledge involved, ways of acting, ways of behaving, and they are sort of uh, channeled through these popular resources. So in a way, what I say in the book is uh, you have financial freedom. You have this idea that you have to work on yourself and so on and so forth, but you, you also have the idea of financial intelligence, of a, of a technical transformation of people. And that's where performativity comes in. Essentially, people are uh, sort of changed, not just through self-reflection, but also through technical tools that they are offered to uh, think and calculate in particular ways. So in the case of uh, financial self-help, you have certain uh, financial statements that people use that transform the way they see finance. And it's, it's, it's fairly simple. They, they change one thing from one column to the other, but that's, that's very significant. And what I argue in the book is that the realm of technical transformation that the theory of economic performativity sort of brought to light uh, quite significantly is, is not divorced from uh, a notion of 
how I should behave, who should I be, how should I transform myself from a project of the self. Essentially, people try to fit these technical tools, what Calon calls prophecies that help them calculate in certain ways, like a financial statement, uh, with uh, certain ways of acting uh, and certain ways of transforming oneself. I think that's such a fascinating um, concept and theory because so often I find that within academics and people of different political persuasions, people end up arguing. One side says, no, we're all just homo economicus. We're rational, selfish <laughs> actors, period. That is natural state of humans. And the other side says, no, we're loving and, and social and everything else. And often we get stuck in those warring camps. And what I see in what you've just said is that actually we're somewhere in the middle and it depends on, it's not, it's not about where we actually sit naturally, but let's look at the things that actually shape how we act in the world. Let's not talk about natural states. Um, and I, I find that to be such a dynamic concept. Yeah, I think that's one of the motivations uh, there in the book. Uh, I mean, not just saying it is shaped by something, but what is it shaped about? And sometimes these books that uh, a lot of people don't pay attention to can have quite a lot of influence in in how many people think about themselves. Exactly. And and the book is full of, of examples of that. One of the ones I found most interesting is one of the additions to the book, as we mentioned earlier, is a certain board game called Cash Flow um, that readers of, of Kiyosaki's work get together to play. And it has, it teaches a lot of lessons. It's a financial, you'll tell us about it, but it's a, a board game where you're making money like any other, but it sort of orients people's thinking about what their next step should be, how they should think about their money. Um, and is, is very much an example of this, of, of teaching people to act in a certain way in the world. Would you tell us about, uh, about the board game and maybe also elaborate on, on how you participated or where you, where you observed all this? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm kind of lucky that cash flow existed because when you try to study things like that as an ethnographer, as a sociologist, if you don't have people who get together in certain situations in which you can uh, see all the things and actually go and participate, uh, I, it, I think it's just much harder to study uh, some sort of ongoing transformation. Of course, I, I interviewed people and I asked them about their biography. I made about 50 uh, interviews in, in the U.S. and Argentina. And um, but I also could observe something that was ongoing, where people uh, talk to each other in this game, where they actually play and and sometimes reflect on on what they're doing. So so that was first of all a very sort of practical opportunity for being able to write a book like this. And so cash flow is was created by Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad Poor Dad, and it brings people together, but it also is, is one of those tools of self-transformation, okay? In financial self-help, everything you do in terms of taking more risks and investing a little bit, you know, people take, uh, you know, first small steps and so on, is, is a tool for self-transformation, is what Foucault would have called uh, practices of the self. And cash flow is a very special one because... It, it's, a, it's a game in which you uh, people can try to see them see themselves in action 
essentially, it's a, a fictitious market. Uh, it has a board with two tracks. One is, one is the rat race and the fast track. The rat race is inspired in the, you know, everyday idea we have of, of the rat race that you you work and you make some money, but then you spend it all in what you need. And then you're always, you work and work and you're always in the same place. And the, and the goal of the game is to live the rat race. And you only live the rat race when you your passive income, the income that doesn't come from your own work, uh, helps you cover all your expenses. So essentially that's when you're financially free. So the, the game is fun <laughs> and it's an opportunity for people to get together with others and sort of reinforce the ideas in the materials they read and so on and so forth. But also it, it helps people um, understand the concept of financial freedom in a somewhat vivid way because you you may accumulate and accumulate money, but you're not free until uh, all that money is transformed into incoming cash flow and not just a stack of money there. And all the technical tools, as I was saying before, you know, with the inspiration of performativity, all these technical tools are meant to reinforce this this idea. And then people can also, as I was saying, see, them, see themselves in action and saying, oh, why did I take more risk here or less risk here? Should I be, uh, should I try taking more risk? Am I, what kind of person I am? Am I right for this? And essentially uh, with playing several times, people can try to modify the risk first study themselves know themselves and then sort of modify their the risk uh tolerance so uh, and so that allowed me to 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 see these in action and and my, the the context of how people play is different in in different places but in in the u.s this was uh in new york where i did the field work was Fairly small groups. Someone organizes online, creates a, a, a cash flow club, and actually these clubs are independent from the company that produced the game. People just go out and want to play with others uh, first because the game is a little expensive. So you know sometimes you don't want to jump into spending two hundred bucks in a game, but also because you. Some people say. Uh, people I interviewed said, I, I have no one to play with. It was a bit embarrassing playing this board game with friends. Everyone thinks I'm crazy. So, you know, you get a, so you, you, by playing cash flow, you get into a social world that is more supportive of the ideas people might start to develop while reading uh, these books or engaging in, in forms of financial self-help. In some cases, it's the first thing they do. Some friend invites them to a game and they go. So, and in Argentina, it was, uh, the games were more part of larger, like one day workshop that people spend a little bit more money on that. The games in New York were free uh, for the most part. This is, you know, this was a more expensive uh, thing which you get, I don't know, in the morning, a seminar on on the ideas of Robert Kiyosaki. And again, many of these things were completely independent from, from the company. Uh, and then in the afternoon, people would play the game for four or five hours. And many, many would become, you know, friends or exchange business cards. 
and reflect. Many times these uh, activities have a you know a moment of pause and reflection. What did you do in the game? How did you get out of the rat race? What mistakes you made? What did you learn about yourself? And so on and so forth. So uh, I think it was a, sort of a point of entrance that uh, was at the same time a very, very significant practice of uh, self-transformation. And what I say in the book is that it's, 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 uh, it's serious business, but it can also be fun. You know, some, it's a game. So, and people might play sometimes in coffee shops and sometimes in these larger organized seminars. I'd like to just jump off of, you're telling us here about how this is a social process too. People aren't just reading these books on their own. They're also getting together and and playing the game with one another. And and as you spend one chapter talking about supporting each other uh, in a lot of ways. So, you know, there is this idea that we are out on our own, homo economicus, out for ourselves. But there is some kind of, maybe you call it a contradiction or not, that a lot of the people that organize these are very helpful towards others, selfless in some ways, and trying to, in this community of people, trying to help themselves get into this world of financial freedom. Would you tell us about sort of how you how you observed that and what the tension is you see there? Yes, I, I observed something that to me was somewhat paradoxical when I was participating in these groups. Essentially, we tend to think our self-interest and our uh, disinterest, as uh, sociologists call it, and as uh, sociologist Pierre Bourdieu calls it, or generosity or care for the others as, as things that are contradictory in nature, which makes a lot of sense. You're either trying to get something for yourself or you're trying to help others, right? Now, when there was something that was happening in these groups that that framework didn't quite help explain it. So if I, uh, let's say, organize a seminar to help people think about their financial freedom and so on, and I organize a cash flow game, you know, I'm one of those sort of entrepreneurs of the the financial self-help industry. Uh, I'm telling you that I'm helping you, uh, but then at the end of the seminar, I offer you uh, some participation in some business or, you know, some opportunity that's quite clearly beneficial for me. My reaction to that was like, oh, my God, this is all a big scam. And, I, and I'm sure anyone listening so far would have said, wait, isn't this all a big scam? You know, what do people think about that? And my reaction was that. But then, uh, of course, as, a, as an ethnographer, as a sociologist, I need to try to make sense of how people think of this, not how I uh, react to this. And and I saw that people have a, a particular way of um, combining or reconciling these two things that didn't seem contradictory for them. Essentially, you can um, help me and you can make money off of it, and that's fine. So interest and disinterest are not seen as contradictory. And the the logic that sort of ties all this together is the idea of a world of abundance. So basically, these are people trying to change themselves in order to become uh, rich, financially free, and so on. So uh, one... uh, 
organizer of these activities in New York always said, and, and, I, and I borrowed that for this concept, always said, live in a world of abundance and not in a world of scarcity. So he was saying, you know, help people, be generous, and it's going to come back. Okay. So the, but the notion was that if you want to become that kind of person that is financially successful, you have to start acting like this imaginary version of successful people that have, you know, no limits in terms of what they can do. They are completely free and therefore they can help people and benefit from that without that being contradictory. It's, it's part of that transformation. Okay. So that notion, uh, I think helps everyone in this world, uh, understand each other without being, how can I put it overly suspicious? So even Robert Kiyosaki himself says in some places, he says, you know what? I'm not a, I'm not an author. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not really an author. I'm a business person. I'm selling books here. And in other places, he says, you know, I want to help you. And so all these things are not contradictory. People don't perceive, it, perceive them as contradictory. So it makes possible to say, you know what? This guy might be making money off of this, but that, that doesn't mean to me that it's uh, morally repulsive or anything like that. It's basically uh, you can help people and make money off of it. And that's the way this, uh, this world uh, works. That's the collective logic by which people interact with each other, knowing that it's neither pure disinterest. No one is there only to help others. It would, it would make no sense in this world, but also... Uh, people are not in only and entirely self-interested, and and it sort of uh, configures how uh, people interact with each other. I'd like to to draw out something you mentioned in there, um, which was the the thought of is this a scam? I think when I read the book, and I think when many others read the book, one of their first questions might be, "Well, does it work? You know, does the product work? Does it make people successful? Does it make them financially free?" And, and you say somewhere in the book that you're not really interested in that. You're not really interested in an expose um, showing a scam, but that you're interested in what it can tell us about our world today. Sort of in, in some, would you tell us what, from, from understanding all this world, what are, the key, what are the key things that you've learned from this that will help us understand yeah. our world? Well, I, I think that uh, asking whether people become rich or not is a different question than asking whether this works. Um, because I think it works in terms of people working on themselves and trying to change themselves. And it's sort of an ongoing, continuous project, you know, as I was saying earlier, related to neoliberalism of perfecting oneself in order to be completely self-responsible, autonomous, independent, and so on. So some people might do better. Some people might not do better. Part of the problem is that the kind of study I did 
uh, it's not the kind of study that can verify, you know, years down the road where whether people uh, achieve that specific goal or not. Uh, so that's why I say I'm I'm not entirely interested because I think the effects of these are much larger in terms of people entering in a particular way of thinking about themselves and transforming themselves, uh, and in, instead of evaluating financial self-help books for uh, the the idea that people are going to become uh, rich uh, down the road. So, I mean, if you ask me if I would like to know, uh, maybe I, I would, but not in this kind of study. I think what the vantage point of my study was more into how people mobilize this in a way that, that transforms the, the way they think about themselves and the way they conduct themselves, regardless of results, which sociologists know that eventually uh, someone becoming rich or not or whatever is not going to depend only on their uh, willpower, as these books uh, promise you. Uh, but we, we kind of already know that. So I think the vantage point of the book is seeing that process of self-transformation. Great. Well, we've we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, there's many things in the book that we have not covered here, particularly a comparison between the United States and, and Argentina, uh, comparing how this world operates in the two. Um, but I'd like to ask just one final question about what you're working on now since the book. What are your latest projects? Well, I am working on... Um, a couple of different projects and um, the main ones are two right now. One, uh, they're, they're fairly different from the book. One is a project on uh, that is more, is closer to the sociology of money. So it's somewhat related, but not so much. And it's about how um, psychologists and particularly uh, psychoanalysts in Argentina, which is a very, a place where there's uh, a, a very, very large amount of psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis is very strong, how they think about money and more specifically how they charge patients and how they think about payments in a relationship that is, you know, very intimate and very complex. And it's also care work. So care work usually complicates the way people relate around money. So that's one project. And the other project I'm working on is I'm analyzing a museum of economics that is in Mexico City that tries to um, show economics uh, as a a museum piece, presenting economics to the population. And there's many other things going in in the museum in terms of outreach and financial education that are closer to the the themes of the book. Uh, But essentially, I'm I'm trying to understand, following the... uh, Partly the idea of performativity of how economics makes it into into the world, how it becomes uh, true, if you wish, and a very unusual uh, or to me unexpected place was uh, a cultural institution like like a museum. So that caught my attention, and I'm doing research with that too. Well, Daniel Friedman, thank you so much for writing the book, and thank you for being on the show. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Um, I enjoy this a lot. Thank you so much. 